This is Alexandra Constantine, and you are listening to the Dicenius Review, where we discuss novels, film, art, and culture from a perspective outside the mainstream. The Review is a Substack podcast, but you can listen to us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple, and anywhere else via RSS. If you enjoy the show, please like, follow, and share this episode. Alright, with that out of the way, let's talk about The Jackalopians, a novel that exemplifies what we should be writing and what I want out of our scene. Mark Marlowe's novel is a current-day satire, a novel for and about the most marginalized and silenced voices in our present day, the decent, moderate, culturally Christian, young, white, American male. I know that statement will have some creatures pulling their blue hair and clenching their assholes, but it's damn true. I challenge any of you to walk into a Barnes & Noble or any bookstore and find a recently published novel where the protagonist is a 20-something moderate white male set in the present day. And no, I'm not talking about historical fiction or science fiction, and it cannot be written by a writer that has been grandfathered in, like someone like Brett Easton Ellis or Jonathan Franzen. If you find such a novel, please let me know in the Substack's comment section for this episode because I want to be proven wrong. The Jackalopians is a satire that starts in the most absurd of times, the COVID plague of stupidity. Our narrator Dan is a young lawyer doing legal grunt work for a DC firm. He's dating a normal girl and living a normie life when the virus hits and everything turns into the Kafkaesque nightmare we experienced. He's stuck in his apartment working remotely. Anti-Trump riots are happening in the streets. His girlfriend cheats on him, causing him to sink into a downward spiral of confusion and depression. At this low point, through a serendipitous accidental revelation of his political interest during a Zoom meeting, he gets invited to a meeting of a secret society called the Jackalopians. Dan, skeptical at first, weary about being caught up in some right-wing fascist group, nonetheless decides to go to the meeting, which turns out to be in a pub on the edge of D.C. The Jackalopians, named after the famous American pseudo-cryptid, are a group of young male professionals who get together, drink beer, and talk about politics, girls, and anything and everything, all wrapped up in a LARPy secret society-like ritual centered around the Jackalope, a sort of rotary club, but all they do is drink beer and bullshit. Their answer to the disconnected, atomized world of COVID. At first, the meeting the, the, meeting the novel plays with the point of view and gives the background of Haji LaRue, the leader of the Jackalopians, and the story of how he came to create the group during the turbulent but exciting 2015 political season. We learn about Haji's childhood as a Catholic, his time in college, where he was exposed to heretical progressive priests that led him to reject his faith, his era of self-destructive experimentation with alcohol and women, and finally, his trip across the United States where he came across the Jackalope. The Jackalopians is a novel about young, intelligent men who would have been considered to be invaluable members of society in past generations, but in our modern America are set adrift in a world of degeneracy and confusion, Yet they find each other, hold on to old valleys, and rediscover old faith and friendship even when mired in the swamps of clown world. This book is a satire, often funny, but always true. We have the insanity of COVID lockdowns and hysteria, the riots and the hypocrisy, degenerate furry protesters who hide their perverse sadism with moral platitudes and liberal catchphrases, car chases, gun battles, romance, faith, friendship, and a satisfying bittersweet ending. The Jackalopians has it all. Most of all, Mark Marlowe's novel feels real. For all its satire and comedy, there is a deep truth on these pages, a truth that you won't find in any book sitting on the tables of Barnes & Noble, but you will recognize it because you know, because you and I have lived it. Today, I am happy to welcome the King Jackalope himself, Mark Marlowe. Hey, welcome, Mark. 
thanks for having me on. Uh, I really have enjoyed your podcast. I've listened to all your episodes so far, and I love what you're doing here. Um, so it's you know it's great, and I think my book really does hit a lot of the same notes as what you're trying to do with this podcast. I think in your first episode, you talked about this feeling that so many of us have of alienation in the modern world, even for those of us who live outwardly successful lives. Uh, so I think I'm a lot like you. I'm a re older millennial, I'm married, I have kids, uh, but there's still a, a real emptiness in modern life. And that's the type of person that my book is trying to capture. It's about people like the, the main character is a lawyer. Uh, working a job where you get paid a ton of money, but still that his entire life is empty. Um, and it's all about that kind of quest for meaning and bringing people together and trying to find something higher in basically a world that doesn't allow for any of that. Absolutely. And uh, I think that that is exactly why uh, I'm, I was attracted to the novel. And uh, it's kind of like, there's kind of a synergy between you know where I am in life and where a lot of my friends are in life, you know, the main character, Dan, he, he, he's a lawyer and he's unhappy with his life, which is funny because one of my podcast guests is also a lawyer who feels a lot of the same things. So when I read that novel, I was like, hey, Alex, read this novel, <laughs> you know? Oh, great. Thank you. Um, but you're an independent writer. All right. You decided to write a novel about the current year, a novel that addresses modern issues instead of opting for a science fiction or fantasy like so many indie writers tend to do what made you go this route because so many of us just go hey, i'm gonna write a western because i'm afraid of talking about today what what made you take this leap and go contemporary yeah well that's a good question and i think in part it's for the same reasons you say like there's so much sci-fi uh, not a lot of Westerns, although I think Westerns kind of suffer from the same problem. Uh, but there's so much sci-fi and fantasy and people churning out these books that are really just, I think, a form of escapism. Uh, so it's fine if you like sci-fi and that's what you want to write. Like, I would never say that anybody should not do what interests them and what they want to write about. Um, but for me, I think it's really a way to kind of escape the issues of the present day and to avoid the real problems that are plaguing us. And like Westerns or books said in the past are the same reason they're, they're, the, they're doing the same thing because they're, they're, it's talking about a better time or a time that had different issues than our own and isn't really giving much guidance on kind of how we should be living in the present day. Um, so I wrote this book in part because I was trying to fill a gap in the the work that's out there, especially the work on the kind of right wing literature scene. Um, so I I wanted to set a book in the actual present day. The book is set in 2021 for the most part, although there's lots of flashbacks and it takes place kind of all across all the different times of that are important to us as part of the millennial generation. Um, but the core of the action is set in the year 2021. Uh, it's about the COVID era, the BLM riots, and all of those things that uh, nobody is really writing about, at least in novel form. Um, I think th there's definitely risks in doing that. Um, I think it is a hard thing to, to pull off in part because the, the stuff we write about 
becomes dated really quickly. So right. the news cycle moves so fast. Uh, sometimes you, know, you write about something that you think is important and it'll be forgotten like a month later. Uh, like, you know, a month ago, everybody was talking about some stupid calendar that was posted on Twitter. About, oh, like, I, uh, I forgot about that already. I know. Yeah. And like nobody even remembers that now. Uh, but even even about more significant things like, um, you know, co- my book is about COVID and COVID is no longer relevant anymore. Um, so it's, you, you have to do it in a certain way, the way, and I was aware of that problem as I was writing it, the way I tried to do it was basically to, to kind of take a snapshot of a certain time and just depict that time accurately. And even if that time passes and becomes not relevant in the future, at least you're talking about general principles that, can still be drawn out of that and applied in the future, even once like the COVID lockdowns and everything went away. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking about COVID and, you know, we all lived in different, uh, different places and our COVID experience was really different. I would, I was in Los Angeles for the majority of the COVID stuff. And my experience is probably a lot different than somebody in New York or somebody in Florida or, you know, wherever. Um, And I'm kind of, I'm kind of weary of writing something, you know, I think I, I think you're pretty brave one for that reason, but it's such a charged element right now where it immediately based on how you felt about the COVID lockdowns, how you felt about the vaccines or the situation, it immediately puts you on the right or the left politically. And sometimes, you know, most of us just don't want to deal with that kind of craziness. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I do think like, to be fair, I don't really know. <laughs> how much someone on the left can really get out of my book other than just telling them that they should change their mind. Uh, because I mean, it is a right wing book. Like that's one of the criticisms I've gotten that it's, it's too politically didactic. Um, I don't really think it is too politically didactic, but in the times that we live in, you, you really, you have to take a stand and you can't really be neutral if you're going to write about something like COVID. So I accept that basically everybody who's going to read this book will be somewhere on the right. Um, although that's still tens of millions of people potentially. So that's like perfectly big enough audience. I haven't hit that ceiling quite yet. Um, but there, yeah, the, the, it does, it does pigeonhole you on the right, but I think you have to take these kinds of stands. So like when you think about, a, or when I think about who a lot of my favorite authors are, especially authors from the past century, uh, from 20th century, like these are people who were writing about the issues that faced them in the present times and taking a position on like what was right and wrong in that time. Um, so like you think, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to be horrible at pronouncing names, but like Bulgakov, uh, who wrote the book, The Master and the Margarita, like that is a book about Stalinism, uh, a very funny book, interesting book. Um, but it wouldn't have been improved if he like took a neutral stance on whether Stalin was good or not. Um, so I kind of think about that in the same way when I'm writing, like, you know, I'm taking a stance on whether the social phenomena that we observe today are good. Um, and I think that's pretty clear from the book. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And you know, it's funny you mentioned, uh, Master and Margarita. I actually started reading that last night for the first time. Oh, wow. So completely unrelated. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, and it's great. Is. I read the first few chapters and it's a fantastic novel. Yeah. You know, the other thing 
pertaining to COVID and writing about the, you know, the current year, it's not just the right wing that's not writing. Nobody's writing it. Uh, nobody's making movies about it. It like almost it's like we have a willful societal like amnesia where we want to forget those years. And um, I think it is important for us to write about it because history is made through culture. And there's narratives that are going to come out, you know, 10, 20 years from now about that time during lockdowns and why the lockdowns happened. And if we don't write the truth about it, if we don't, you know, speak out, uh, even if it's polarized, uh, one side's going to control the narrative completely, like like it has about, you know, World War Two, World War One, you know, the Vietnam War, everything. The narratives are always controlled through culture and movies and literature and, you know, books and stories. And uh, we need to be able to put our perspective out there. And that's why one of the main reasons why I do like the Jackalopians a lot. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think one of my big, um, one of the big reasons I wrote it was to leave a record of what life was like in 2020 to 2021. Um, And that it's for the exact same reason you're saying there are a lot of things in there that will be dated, but like they're put in there specifically so we don't forget like one of the ones that I always mention for this example is like the Cuomo sexual so there's like in one of the scenes the narrator meets one of these people who has a shirt that's like I says I identify as a Cuomo sexual uh extremely embarrassing thing that people did in that time but and that they want us to forget about but we need to make sure that they don't forget about it uh and this was of course when they were talking about how they like have sexual fetishes for New York governor Andrew Cuomo because of the way he handled the COVID response and that it was supposedly more scientific than Trump's. Uh, That was before Cuomo, of course, was then ousted, I guess, or he was impeached or he resigned or whatever because he, for like... like sexual harassment allegations uh and then they all turned on him later but at the time there was this whole Cuomo sexual movement um so it's important to build a record not let people forget all these things there's the serious stuff like COVID was a real attack on the human soul like the government's response to Mm -hmm. this you know it didn't affect me hugely because I wasn't necessarily young at the time and my kids were not old enough to really be affected, but I really, you know, I, I really feel bad for like the zoomer generation who went through, the, who were like basically robbed of their youth absolutely. for like criminal. two years. Criminal. Abso- yeah, absolutely criminal. And for the younger generation, like the kids who are like three years older than my own kids and had to face a world where they were like only interacting with people through masks uh, is absolutely horrible. And it, it shows like the real deformed view of the leftists kind of understanding of the human soul and like the the role of the individual in society so it's absolutely pure evil and needs to be cataloged for that way but it's also i think our the saving grace of our time um which is different than what bolkakov was writing about in stalin with stalin although he did it he, he i'm amazed that he was able to write about stalin in a funny way maybe it's just that i didn't experience it so i have a, a darker view of it than it, maybe it actually was for the people who were there but i think that the the saving grace of our time is that at least our totalitarianism can be funny so as evil as these people are they do incredibly stupid stuff and there is a lot of room for humor there uh so even though my book deals with really serious topics i try to do it throughout in a funny way and i think that's probably 
you know, I think when you look at the title, there's a there's a hard limit on how serious this book can be, like the Jackalopian some modern right. tale. Tale obviously spelled no one talks about this, but tale spelled like an animal tale, which is like something an editor would have never allowed, but it's like well, I thought it was funny at the time. Uh but it's um yeah, I mean it so it's it's a a very funny book, I think. I try to make it funny, um, even though it deals with serious topics. And part of that is just that our the time we live in is so absurd that it lends itself to a funny treatment. Absolutely, and you know what? Like, I'm a I'm a, I'm a Romanian, and I was born in Romania during communism, and I moved to the United States as a little kid. But my family grew up during, you know, they lived in the harshest times of Eastern European communist depression, and one of the things that always stood out to me about like consuming some of the old media from that era that my dad shared with me is how funny they were because when you're living in an oppressed situation sometimes the only thing you can do is just laugh about it you know and uh, you see that a lot in like eastern european culture in russian romanian uh you know uh, polish that there's almost like a laughing at oppression laughing at your fate in the world and making fun of the people oppressing you you might not be able to you know fight them off but you can mock them and i think that's why humor is such a powerful tool and you know what you're right though right to to go back to the covid thing like when i think about it maybe one of the reasons i don't try not to read as much stuff about it because it pisses me off it pisses me off and it's not just a political element of it it's the cultural day-to-day neighbors that i had to deal with during that episode i am i'm fortunate that i'm married to a fantastic woman who absolutely said no to putting my five-year-old in a mask so my daughter never once wore a mask and my wife worked so hard with her friends to provide a normal childhood during those years for our kids by you know, having people over, meeting in parks, going on hikes, doing all kinds of things we could in Southern California. And I will remember to this day, I think I'll take this to my grave, that one day I took my daughter to a nearby town uh, in California, actually Ojai, California, which is kind of a upper class, bougie, like Hollywood retiree, like town in the middle of kind of like the desert in Ventura County. And we were there, and there was a little park, and we were having ice cream, you know, playing in the park with my daughter. And there was a father with two sons who were, I would say, maybe six or seven, and they were kicking a ball back and forth. And they kicked the ball over, and it came towards my daughter, who was like three and a half, maybe four at the time. And she, a very social kid, and she picked up the ball and went towards the father to give him the ball. And the guy recoiled from this three-year-old and threw his mask on like like she was like a plague carrier. And I was filled with so much fucking rage and disgust at that moment that I, I didn't know what to do. I was like dumbfounded, you know, that like this grown man in front of his sons recoils from a three-year-old who might or might not have an upper respiratory infection, which tantamounted to a cold and it disgusted me and i want people to remember that okay i want people to remember how they put you know yellow tape around the playgrounds in my neighborhood and i had to go there and cut them so my kid could play i wanted to remember you know i wanted people to remember how they filled uh skate parks in my old town of san clemente with sand so so kids couldn't go skating or how i used to hike through you know the ventura mountains and people would put on their masks when passing each other on a trail which is fucking ridiculous you know so there is there is that element i don't want people to forget that nonsense 
But no, I went yeah. on a rant. I went on a rant. <laughs> yeah, no, exa- it's a great rant. Uh, and I feel exactly the same way. Um, I don't want to say too much about my personal life, but I also live in a very liberal area dealing with all those same people. Uh, luckily, I'm also married to a fantastic woman, too. So we had kind of the same experience. We didn't let our kids wear masks, didn't let our kids get vaccinated um, and all of that, and really did shield them as much as we could from the times. But it, it, it was a horrible time. And there's really this tendency to just be like, OK, well, that happened in the past. It's over now. Let it go. Uh, but we can't let it go because it says so much about not only the people who rule us, but the people all around us. Uh, like I've really, I've really come to agree. There's the the Solzhenitsyn quote about how the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Uh, I think really in in America, our problem isn't necessarily the ruling class; it's like the people themselves. Um, so it's you. Know, Biden would never be able to do all the bad things he's doing if it were not for the millions of people who supported him. If anything, he's probably more moderate on a lot of these issues as just this kind of blue collar Scranton, Pennsylvania guy than a lot of his voters are. Um, but it's, it's people like that guy wearing the mask in the park that you saw who are demanding that our country do all these horrible things. Um, and you know, ultimately the responsibility for all of this is on all of us. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I want to change topic and go back to the, your actual novel. All right. So your novel got some criticism about the layered narrative format, right? Which I liked. I liked the added complexity. Most of all, I liked that you experimented, right? For an independent writer, I liked that you messed around with uh, inner, you know, inner nested narrative, uh, different point of views, and I feel like that is lacking in a lot of, you know, actual independent writing. And uh, when I read it, I was like, wow, this is cool. All right, it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. But I like that you did it. I like that you experiment. You know, what what made you choose that strange format? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I don't know that there's necessarily a profound reason I did it. Just that I thought it was kind of weird and I liked it. Uh, it's the it's the format that the Heart of Darkness is written in. Uh, also, the book Lord Jim. Uh, so the Heart of Darkness it makes a little bit more sense because it's like a novella. Uh, but Lord Jim, which is also by Conrad, is like possibly longer than the Jagalopians, I guess, depending on which edition you're looking at. And it's all written in that same format. Uh, and I just, I read that and I, I just thought like this format is cool. Uh, and part of it is just that it, it is experimenting. Uh, I think it's, it's kind of interesting in our social media age where it's like fragmented and kind of meta and ironic. And like, it's, it's like, is this a joke or is it not a joke? Like, why is he doing this? Uh, so it, it has that element to it, but it's also just, it, it's a, I think it's a kind of fun way to experiment um, in writing the novel. And when you look back at the time that people like Conrad were writing, they did much more experimentation in narrative forms than people are doing now. Uh, maybe it was just because they didn't have editors who were like as professionalized, so they were allowed to do stuff like that. But like the book Dracula is written all as just like a series of letters between people. Uh, in, and it occurs in ways that don't really make sense at all. Like some action happened and the next thing the guy did was like run down to his lap his desk and write it all out in a letter. <laughs> so it's like right. they do, they did this stuff, but I don't think it really detracts from the novel. Um, I think you just have to kind of get past it. And 
I think, uh, you know, the parts of my books that are like long discussions of things that happen, they're all in quotation marks in like the Conrad Lord Jim style. Uh, if you just can, if you just accept it for what it is, like it's written basically the same way as the parts that aren't in quotation marks. And it's basically just, you know, telling the story that it, but it's in the context of one guy telling the story to a different guy. Um, so if that, I mean, if people, if people want to criticize that aspect of the novel, I think they're being a little bit pedantic and pretentious um it's really not that big of an issue i think yeah i mean i i'm a reader of maximalist fiction okay i i read bolaño i read you know uh just pinchoon um and those novels are hard to follow you know they're they're layered they're you know a, a journal entry that turns into a television report that turns into a police report and you know you get a novel like v where you have no idea what's going on for like a thousand pages because it hops between five characters and one minute you're in New York and the next minute you're in like South Africa during the 19th century. Um, so I had no problem following that novel. And, you know, I want experimentation. And I think that we have this ish idea of the novel, uh, the 21st century novel. You know, it's between so many thousand words and like 90,000 words or whatever. Uh, it's you know between two covers and it has to be done. And what a lot of us don't realize is that we don't need that anymore. Uh, with the internet, with Kindles and uh, you know, digital files, your novel can be a billion words if you wanted to. It can never end. Uh, yeah. Your novel can be released across Substacks. Your novel can be put out on Twitter, you know, post by post if you really wanted to, you know. You can experiment. You can do all kinds of stuff. My wife is reading this fantasy novel, I, I don't know anything about it, so don't ask me, but she was telling me something cool yesterday. There, the series has novels released at the same time, and there's multiple ways to read the series, so you can actually jump from one chapter in this novel to one chapter in this novel and kind of like interlace it, and there's like charts. And I'm like, well, that's a freaking cool idea, you know? Yeah. It might be like trendy and kind of, eh, but it's still like an interesting format that would not be able to happen without the internet, you know, without the message boards, without the websites and, you know, Instagram and that kind of stuff. So I think a lot of us need to break away from the mindset of the novel or, you know, the work of art as a square. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, I have a lot of things to do. I think writing a book is probably the least profitable use of my time right now. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you're going to do it, I think you need to do it in a way that's fun to you and you're trying something new uh so that's really that's really all i was going for i'm not yeah to be clear i'm not going to follow that method in my next book um i think it's time yeah but you you do it once and kind of see how it goes uh, my next book is you know, also not a linear plot but it, it doesn't have the quotation mark thing that people complain about right you should write it in like windings or code or something like that yeah maybe i will maybe i'll just convert off. it all Right. So leaving that aside, next thing I want to talk to you, and this is the big one. This is actually something I wanted to talk to you about my, with my other guest, Alex, but we didn't, we ran out of time. Um, the Jackalopians, right? I think at its core, yes, it's a COVID book. Yes, it's a political book that addresses the, you know, the 21st century in our time. But I think at its core, it's a Christian novel, right? It's a novel about faith and community, right? And for some reason today, when we think about Christian themes in modern literature, we immediately jump to Ned Flanders, Veggie Tales, and Left Behind stereotypes, just cringe stuff. Or 
the negative portrayals of Christians being racist bigots, corrupt child molesters, you know, uh, scam artists, right? Yet, historically, some of the greatest novels of all time, Dostoevsky's masterpieces, Tolstoy, you know, uh, The Magic Mountain, are deeply and fundamentally Christian, right? Is this an American problem? Because recently I read a novel called Laurus, right? It's a powerful Russian Christian novel by Eugene Vodolaskin, and it blew my mind. This is a contemporary Christian novel, right, that, you know, is, is mainstream, right? And so where is the great contemporary American novel that honestly and respectfully addresses the Christian faith? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, so in turn, I don't know about other people who are doing it. Um, but I totally agree with you. I think that this is, you know, this is an important thing. And you know, the, the left behind series and things like that really don't, uh, they're, they're not a proper representation of how Christian writing should be. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think that this is a problem both with religious writing and political writing that there are so many, people that just do it in kind of a stupid cringe way. Uh, so something like left behind novels or like Ben, Sh I think Ben Shapiro wrote a novel um, and people think of that as the kind of political religious message writing. Um, but really what we should be thinking about and what we should be aiming towards is people like Dostoevsky or Dante uh, or these people who captured Christianity in a much more profound way through literature. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm like them at all, but mm -hmm. I do think that when I'm thinking of a goal of how my writing should look like, uh, I try to orient myself as like the ultimate goal of capturing something like Dante. Um, I think actually, you know, so, I mean, not in recent years, but like Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh uh, and these people from like the mid 20th century are probably closer to what I'm trying to capture than maybe Dante. Uh, but these are people who are writing about Christianity in their own contemporary times and all the problems that the Christian faces. Um, so like one of one book that was really powerful for me, uh, I'm a convert actually. So like I was raised as a libtard and a like godless atheist. Um, and I became a Catholic as an adult. Um, and so, you know, one book that I read like long before I converted to Catholicism was the book, The Power and the Glory uh, by Graham Greene, um, which is interesting because it's, again, his contemporary times in a time period that is totally forgotten to us, which was like the persecution of the Catholic Church by like certain state governments in Mexico in the 1920s. Um, and it's all about like a priest who's on the run trying to like deliver the sacraments to these uh, these like backwoods, like Mexican villagers um, while the like atheist government is trying to kill him. And then the priest himself is like a very bad person. Like he impregnated a woman in one of these villages. He's a drunk, uh, all this kind of stuff. So uh, the Catholic Church, actually, when the book came out, uh, like, banned it <laughs> they said like catholics aren't allowed to read this uh which i actually i, I kind of relate to that because like there are certain elements of my book too that are not complementary towards the institutional church and that are um you know things that like a real kind of pious church lady would not write about like depictions of sex and things like that um but i think when you get past that and you look at it at a, at a more fundamental level it is trying to capture um the just the reality of sin 
and the failings that modern people fall into. Um, so I think this probably obvious to people who have read my book, but like the main characters are pretty clearly based on me, uh, not necessarily in the, the outward actions that they take or the things that they do, but like their inner struggles. I see a lot of those same struggles as being issues that I face in my own life. Um, but it is, you know, it, I don't know. It, it's an effort to do that, to like to delve into the reality of sin and how broken the modern world is, but also to look at the ways that people might rise out of that. Right. Absolutely. And you know what? Um, I haven't read the Graham Greene novel, but I've read you know, a lot. And I think there's an issue, and I see this in a lot of uh, contemporary indie Christian kind of writing from on our side. Um, it becomes, they're afraid to criticize Christianity, or they're afraid to criticize Christians more more specifically, and they turn their characters into uh, like Marvel superheroes of Christianity, and that's fake because I think one of the clear you know tenets of Christianity is that we're, we're messed up, we're not we're not good, you know, we should try but we're not good, you know, and even the best of us has failings and, and falls short. Now, myself, I, I wasn't born a libtard. I was actually born uh, baptized uh, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, right? But I was raised super liberal, super atheist. My entire, like, my entire teenage and adult life, I was a hardcore, you know, Reddit atheist, basically, you know, uh, listened to, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, Christopher Hitchens and the whole deal, you know? And uh, it was actually novels that brought me back. It was uh, rereading the Brothers Karamazov a few years ago that just it struck me like there was like a truth in that novel that I just had this realization like man I should look back into the church I was baptized as you know. And uh, I remember reading I was on a plane and I was finishing the novel and I was like what am I doing I I need to I need to talk to somebody about this. And I've read that novel before. And have you, are you familiar with the Brothers Karamazov? Um, I'm basically familiar. I so I haven't read it, but it's a book that I plan to read pretty soon. Okay. I think it's the greatest novel of all time, and I will stand by that. But it, it's mostly about three different characters. Four, if you want to be you know extra about it. But when I first read it in high school, I identified with uh, the character Ivan, who was this intelligent atheist doubter. Um, a writer and he uh you know he was the super atheist and i thought he was the coolest character and I, everything the guy said i was like okay i agree with him i agree with him you know fast forward you know almost 20 years and i'm sitting here in a plane reading this novel and now i identify with the other brothers i identify with uh dimitri who was a drunk former soldier you know whoremonger who couldn't you know slept around with hookers and gypsies and stuff like that and I was like, wow, you know, I, I get it. I get these characters now coming back from looking back in my own life. And it just illustrates the power of literature and how literature and truth can bring you to religion uh, in the same way, you know, um, you know, music or, uh, or any of that for, for a fact. You know, uh, I read uh, um, C.S. Lewis's Surprised by Joy, which is kind of like his semi-autobiography about how he found faith. And he found faith through literature, through reading, through um, 
you know, his love of kind of like, you know, pagan mysticism and beauty that brought him to Christianity. And I think that's why it's so important for us to be honest about our faith, you know. And there's a lot of fantastic stuff. And to go back to the Russians, we're always going back to the Russians. It always struck me as odd that the best, the greatest Christian filmmaker is Andrei Tarkovsky, right? And he made these deeply religious movies uh, like Andrei Rublev while working in the Soviet Union under the most, you know, atheist and oppressive time in history for, for you know, modern Christianity. Yet us Americans cannot do that. You know, and I, I find that very odd, and I wonder what it is about it. Yeah, I don't know, um, but I I do definitely agree with that, and I think you're right about um, a lot of the depictions that we see of Christianity on the right wing. So, like a lot of a lot of kind of right wing discussion about Catholicism is kind of what you say this like Marvel superhero thing, uh, or it's like the based Catholic Church to you burn all the heretics at the stake or something and it's like that that's nothing like what the actual catholic church is like um but it is important to still i think come to god despite the failings of the institutions that are all around us um and that's that's really what i'm trying to capture um in my book because yeah i think uh th- this point about uh you know the, we're, we're all bad and so this we've mentioned this point a few times in this podcast now but like that that's really a recurring theme i think and one of the things when i first uh was uh converting to catholicism uh, i was traveling with my wife and we were at some you know going to mass at some other church while we were traveling um and one of the things that the priest said there during the homily which has stuck with me for many years now um but it was about um he was saying like what is the catholic church and you know is it you know, you know, i don't know whatever like giving a bunch of examples is it just the, whatever the pope says is it uh this source of you know, truth and beauty whatever but he, he was saying that really what the catholic church is is the haven for sinners um and that was something that that may be kind of basic but at least to me as a recent convert it was pretty profound um because really it gets to this this central truth that we are all bad and to really talk honestly about religion you have to delve into how bad we actually are um and i think my book does that i think in certain ways i'm benefited by the fact of being a convert so that like I talk about things that the real churchy cradle Catholics would never want to talk about. Like there's a, you know, there's a scene where like a guy is getting a hand job in a restaurant right. and like uh, certain, but, and, and so I think when you read that, like you're clearly not saying that I'm, you're not taking away the message that I'm saying people should be doing this or that this is a healthy relationship. Um, but still there's like a real squeamishness in a lot of American Christianity. It is this kind of Ned Flanders outlook, uh, that you don't, that like, you shouldn't be talking about that at all. You should only be talking about how good we are. Um, but I think that that really is, uh, not as powerful as delving into the true reality of sin. Right. Because that's real, you know, that's, that's a real scene. Right. Uh, a lot of us probably lived that exact scene or something like it, you know, mm-hmm. and I uh, my, my favorite scene in the book, you know, and this is going to be kind of a spoiler, is when uh, Haji goes to the statue of the jackalope 
in mm-hmm. like was it North Dakota or something like that or Wyoming, yeah. Wyoming, yeah. And that scene is when he realizes, you know, that that's the religious scene. That's the religious return scene right there. And I thought it was fantastic how you how you did it. Yeah, thank you. Um, that scene doesn't get talked about as much, but uh, I really appreciate that. That's my wife's favorite scene in the book, too. Right. So uh, you and her so far are the only people I've known who have that as their favorite scene. So you're, you're in very good company there. Right, because it, it, it it's at its core what the book is about. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's why I liked it. Um, to roll back on another thing you kind of mentioned just now. So as writers, you know, creators, artists, whatever – um, and Christians, sometimes I feel like we're, you know, we're, we're afraid of, not me, but other people are afraid of portraying, you know, sexual stuff or, you know, evil or that type of thing, or, um, you know, more rated R type elements. And how, how do you navigate that? How, how do you think we should navigate that kind of issue? Yeah, it's a tough issue. And this is the, the thing that I do still kind of feel a little bit bad about, um, not necessarily that I should, like, I don't think it's wrong to do it, but it does leave you feeling a little bit uncomfortable when you're describing sex um, as like a practicing Catholic and a father. Um, But I think it's ultimately something that we have to get past. I think a lot of this squeamishness um, is just this kind of relatively modern uh, kind of churchy conception of what like, this kind of antiseptic understanding of what Christianity is that you don't necessarily see when you look back through the history of the church. Like Dante has some pretty vulgar scenes uh, in the divine comedy. Um, and again, like people like Graham Greene were doing, doing similar things. Um, and so I think it's something you have to get past. I think that this squeamishness may also be, this is just my theory. I'm not saying it's true, but I think it is something that's more that happens more in the laity than like among the actual priests because like the priests recall are people who like hear tons of confession and from what i understand again like you know it's tough because like they can't break the seal of confession but from what i understand like from what people generally say like confessions are all just people talking about sex and like masturbating and like using birth control and stuff like that. So like, I feel like priests have a, may have a more realistic understanding of some of the reality of sin than a lot of the laity who have this like antiseptic understanding of it. Um, That's also kind of one of the premises, uh, an interesting thing that I've also been reading recently, uh, GK Chesterton's father Brown mysteries, uh, where it's like a priest who uses his experience of time in the confessional to like solve crimes because he understands like the criminal mind better than other people. Uh, very interesting book. Um, I actually kind of use that a lot in my second book. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that it's, um, it's something that we just basically need to get past because if you want to speak truthfully about the world, you really need to speak about sin. And especially in the modern world, like the father Brown mysteries from GK Chesterton are set in Victorian times. So like the sins that he is often talking about are like cat, like literal cat burglary, like uh, these crazy thieves, like sneaking in somewhere to steal jewels. And like that, that's different I think, than the, the sins that most modern men today are facing, obviously, right. where it's about like porn addiction and masturbating. Um, and so uh, you really can't write too much about the modern world without like 
talking about how just vulgar it is. And when I'm doing that in my book, I'm not saying that any of this is good. Like if I were writing about a murderer, nobody would assume that I was saying that I'm also a murderer. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe nowadays, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe they might. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you, I think you just have to talk about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think if we have one duty, if we have one job as authors, as artists, is to tell the truth. You know, even if the truth is wrapped up in science fiction or fantasy or whatever, we still have to be truthful. And so much literature and content on, you know, modern media is, is just lies. It's just lies. And we all know they're lies because they feel like lies. And when we see the truth, it stands out like this crazy beacon. But sometimes the truth sucks. Sometimes it's gross. Sometimes it, it's violent and perverted and dark and miserable and but it's still the truth and that's more important than sanitizing something because sanitizing something doesn't change the world it just ruins it are you familiar with true detective the, the tv show uh not really i watched it like years ago all right and the reason i bring it up because in in the first season there's a lot of sexual content right and i've seen a lot of discussions about it like why is you know, this is not good. This is bad, bad content because it's too sexual. Why is Alexandria Diodario, you know, completely naked with uh, one of the characters, blah, 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 right? And I always thought that that show, that first season, was the perfect example of sexual scenes that are necessary for the show because it makes the viewer, just to kind of rewind for people that have never seen this season or, you know, to remind you, one of the main characters is cheating on his wife. He's having an affair with Alexandria Diodario's character. And, you know, they're having sex. And it's kind of weird and awkward, right? But when you're watching it as the viewer, it makes you part of that. And you feel why he did it. Because you see the sexual nature of the episode, right? But at the same time, the rest of the show shows how his life falls apart because he did that. So it makes you go, okay, I see why. I was also turned on by that woman, right? Mm. But then the next scene is him hanging out with his daughters and his wife that he cheated on. And you feel miserable. So it makes you like have that part. Like, I don't know, it it, it shows the corruption that those actions led to down the line. And I thought that was the fan, like it would, if they censored it, you would not feel that because you'd say, well, I would never cheat on my wife. You say that until you're presented with an opportunity. Yeah. You know? And then the best of us sometimes fail at that, you know? And that's why I think that good art really brings the reader or the or the viewer into those emotions of the characters and challenges you. And is that good? I don't know. Maybe it's like a vaccine. Maybe by doing it through literature, you won't do it in real life. Or maybe not, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I entirely agree with that. I think that's what I'm trying to do in my book, too. I think the sex scenes that are there are not necessarily there to, like, titillate the reader or anything. It's to try to make a broader point. I mean, there may be some stuff that I didn't need to add, but um, in in general, it is uh, it is meant to convey the same kind of points as you're talking about there. Right, absolutely. And I didn't, feel, I didn't feel like they were gratuitous at all. Now, of course, though, I might be a bit on the left side of the viewpoints when it comes to a lot of this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a believer in complete, 
you know, I, I grew up as an Eastern European. My parents let me watch radio R movies when I was like six, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I didn't, I came out just fine, guys. So besides, you know, what are some of the writers you like? Is there anything new you like reading? Like what's, um, I know, that, you know, not the classics, but any contemporary writers you enjoy? Um, yeah, so there's a lot of good new stuff that's coming out. Um, I think our scene is still developing. So it's, it's tough to say sometimes. Um, but, you know, one person, you know, a great booster of mine, Dan Baltic, um, who probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with, but he wrote the book Nutcranker, um, which so far, I, and I think he would probably agree with this, I think that book Nutcranker and the Jackalopians are really some of the only books that are like comedic depictions of the modern world. Uh, although from, you know, from very different perspectives, I think, um, like he doesn't have, he's not uh, that I know of. I don't think he's a Catholic. There's like no recognizable religious or political message in his book. It's seem it's purely satire, but it's very funny. Um, and it's really, I think worthwhile reading. Um, Another book I read recently uh, was T.R. Hudson's The Perfect and the Wicked, um, which is an interesting kind of look at like a novelization of the uh, the Kennedy family um, and yeah. kind of like their overall arc and journey of, uh, you know, basically selling their soul to the devil. <laughs> that sounds fascinating, actually. <laughs> it's not, uh, it's not, like, not literally, but kind of in a figurative way. Right. Um, and, you know, I think those are the kinds of books that we do need more of, like the realistic, uh, so that's obviously not set in the present time, but like realistic depictions of, you know, modern society and the modern problems we all face. Oh, absolutely. You know, I actually have Don Dan Baltic's uh, novel sitting on my Kindle. I haven't started it yet. So I'm going to, I'm going to push that towards the top now because uh, I do want to read it. I've been meaning to read it for a while. And uh, Dan, you know, maybe he should come join me on the podcast in the future because uh, I'm a fan of uh, all his interviews. I know he he runs a he runs a podcast also, The New Right, I believe. Yeah. You were, you were on that one. That's how I found out about you, actually, I think. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, I was on that. Um, it's a very good podcast. People should check that out. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean... Uh, I, I try to read everything. And like I said on the last episode, like I, I will buy your stuff, man. I, if somebody posts something online and, you know, is one of our guys or even not, I, I buy everybody's stuff. You know, if it catches my interest, I, I've got like 70, 80 novels sitting on my Kindle right now that I haven't even read because I, you know, I just don't have time, but I'm all, I'm all about that. And I love that there's such a rich, we're, we're living in such a, like a, an era of great, content and great stuff that where you can you know yeah you have to dig through the slop but there's some gems out there and i hope that we can you know let people know about it so they can buy it all right man so what are you working on now what's what's next what's the next jackalope what's going on next? yeah so i have another book um that is fully written and i will be aiming to release it soon i uh i finished it a little while ago um i've been editing it for a while um, and I don't want to give too much away. Uh, it's not quite ripe. I'll probably be releasing it in the summer. Um, but it's it's on very similar themes to the Jackalopians. Um, uh, an entirely different plot line, like I kind of referenced before, like the hero is a Catholic priest. Um, and the action of the book is following him uh, as he's trying to deliver uh, last rites and a final confession to like a famous 
uh, sinner. Um, and it, uh, so it covers similar themes. It's all about modern America, uh, kind of the downfall of how we got to the, to where we are today. Um, the, the role of religion and the Catholic church in modern life and kind of the, the depths of sin that we are all seeing. Um, but it's very, it, it's, you know, it's a fu- another funny book. I think it's a little bit darker than the Jackalopians. It's a little bit higher stakes. Um, but I think it has parts that are just as funny um, and just as profound. And so I'm really excited to be releasing that. So everybody keep a lookout for that. Uh, that sounds fantastic, actually. I, I can't wait to read it and hopefully get you back on here so we can talk about it after I read it. Yeah, thanks. I would love to. All right, Mark. Thank you for your time, man. It was a pleasure having you on, and I hope to have you back in the future. Most of all, thank you to my listeners. And remember, if you enjoy the show, please like, follow, and share this episode across all social media platforms. And go pick up Mark's book, The Jackalopians, because it's a fantastic piece of independent literature. 